this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Nicola Byrne, and I'm a legal historian at the Faculty of Law, University of New Brunswick, which is located on the unceded and unsurrendered land of the Willastiquic. Today, I'll be interviewing Kent Roach about his book, Canadian Justice, Indigenous Injustice, the Gerald Stanley and Colton Bushy case. Kent Roach is a professor of law at the University of Toronto's Faculty of Law. A thoughtful and prolific author, he's the co-editor of 13 collections of essays, over a dozen books, several legal casebooks, and approximately 300 articles on a wide range of topics, including criminal law, policing, terrorism, and the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. One of my favorite books is his co-authored work with Justice Robert Sharp about the life and times of Chief Justice Brian Dixon of the Supreme Court of Canada, for which he won the J.W. Defoe Prize for the book that best contributes to the understanding of Canada. Kent has won numerous research and teaching prizes and has been appointed a member of the Order of Canada and a Fellow of the Royal Society of Canada. He has worked on a number of public inquiries and commissions, including the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, where he served as the lead researcher on the volume about the legacy of residential schools. I really could spend this entire podcast outlining his many contributions, but I think it's safe to say that Kent is widely regarded as one of the country's most influential law professors. I first encountered Professor Roach on my very first day of law school. His inspirational words about the importance of the legal profession and academic scholarship have stuck with me for the past 25 years. It's a real pleasure to welcome Kent to Witness to Yesterday. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you for that generous introduction, and it's good to be with you again, Nicole. The case against Gerald Stanley sparked a great deal of controversy in Saskatchewan where the events occurred and across the country. Can you briefly explain the facts of the case and why you decided to write the book? Well, I... I think the case first got public attention when one of Colton Bushy's uh, family members uh, went to the press about the use of peremptory challenges, which were challenges that the accused and the Crown had to dismiss prospective jurors without giving any reason. And when these were used by the accused to remove uh, five visibly Indigenous jur- jurors, um, the case first uh, got into the news. I wrote an op-ed in the Globe and Mail, uh, very supportive of the family's concerns. And then I was teaching criminal law at the time. And so uh, we made it a case study in my course. And of course, uh, um, Gerald Stanley was charged with murder, the included act of unlawful act manslaughter for uh, killing Colton Bushy, who came onto his property with four other in indigenous youth, uh, and uh, uh, Colton Bushy was uh, killed, shot in the back of the head. And uh, the jury was selected. It was uh, an all-white jury, and uh, they acquitted Mr. Stanley of both murder and manslaughter. And so I followed this with my uh, students. We were able to get access to the transcripts uh, shortly after, and I wrote the book 
work because I knew that this was not going to be a case where there would be a public inquiry appointed, even though there had been calls for that. There's not even a coroner's inquest to look at how the death of Colton Bushy as a young Cree man might have been avoided. So um, this was my own little attempt to make sure that Canadians uh, didn't forget this case uh, moving forward. In Chapter 2, you explore the history of Treaty 6 and the 1885 uprising. Why is this history still relevant today? Well, you mentioned uh, off the top that I worked with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and I was very much, I guess, on the truth side of that equation. Uh, I don't know if Justice Sinclair was thinking of me, uh, but his words, uh, the truth will set you free, but first it will piss you off, uh, certainly apply uh, to uh, what for me was a a profound education, uh, reading the words that survivors shared with us and reading more of the history. And so I've always been a bit shy about the word reconciliation. I think it's at most a kind of generational endeavor. But um, uh, the treaties, however, are something that uh, uh, represent a point in time when there was uh, some understandings between Indigenous people and settlers uh, like myself. And so I think we should always, in cases where there are treaties, try to go back and uh, understand and honor them. And so uh, as I was I was working on 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 this, I came across a case where um, a Cree man in uh, Regina had made an argument. It was ultimately unsuccessful in the courts that the treaty required a jury of six indigenous and six non-indigenous uh, uh, people. And I found that was a really interesting uh, um, story, and then listening to Indigenous uh, colleagues talk about the case, they always went back to the treaty and also the hanging uh, of eight Indigenous men, uh, public hanging in 1885 as part of putting down the Northwest uprising. And so I think those things drew me to try to contextualize the case, however imperfectly, by looking at some of the history of Treaty 6 and also uh, the history of both the Real trial and the trial of the Battleford 8. I grew up in a farm family in Saskatchewan. I also practiced law in Saskatchewan. Your chapter about racialized crime and self-defense really resonated with me. Why is it important to understand the Stanley Bushy case in its larger economic, social, legal, historical, and political context? Yes, well, I mean, you know, I only lived in in Saskatoon for a year, but it had a profound influence on me uh, as a person uh, coming from uh, first Lower Canada and then Upper Canada. And uh, the dynamics of Saskatchewan uh, are uh, are uh, fraught. Uh, the rural dynamics are also fraught. Concerns about rural crime are real. We've obviously thought about these in light of the Mass Casualty Commission, although I 
know, um, you know, not all mass casualties seem to count the same when you look at the James Smith um, um, Cree Nation mass casualty uh, event. And so uh, I think in Canada, there is really a sense that a lot of the uh, um, uh, racial injustice is, you know, we're not as bad as the United States. And I remember uh, fairly early in my career um, and uh, uh, reading George Fletcher's book about the Bernard Getz case, who was a white man who shot four black men on the New York subway. And really, my book is a little bit taking a a page out of George Fletcher's book because um, he based it on just one case, but drawing uh, larger implications from it, both from a historical, economic, and social point of view. Of course, one difference is uh, Professor Fletcher was able to talk to the jurors and uh, in Canada, that uh, remains illegal. And the jurors were apparently quite fearful about what was going on. They were very quickly ushered out. And uh, there's been no media appearance uh, by the jurors that acquitted Mr. Stanley of both murder and manslaughter. In his foreword to the book, Indigenous legal scholar John Burroughs claims that your work's important because it considers the potential role of Indigenous treaties to address current justice issues. Can you explain why exploring the history and purpose of the treaties is an important line of inquiry? Well, I learned a lot from John, and John uh, uh, generously shared with me work that he did when he was in Saskatchewan with the treaty commissioners and the elders. And I also think of the late Harold Johnson, who also wrote a book um, about this case, which is an excellent uh, book, uh, uh, Peace and Good Government. Um, and so um, I think by by looking at this through the treaties, you can see that um, this was a treaty issue, the idea that um, uh, the the five Indigenous youth that went on to Mr. Stanley's uh, farm, the idea that they are trespassers is actually very much contested uh, under uh, Treaty 6. And uh, subsequent to this case, although I haven't followed it perhaps as carefully as I should, uh, Saskatchewan has also amended ended uh, some of its trespass laws to kind of reaffirm this idea that it is simply trespass and that the context of whose land it was originally and what the continuing relations are between settlers and indigenous people under Treaty 6 are uh, submerged. And so I think that this is, you know, um, something that Saskatchewan and the prairies really have to deal with. Um, um, is are we going to ignore these treaty issues uh, or are we actually going to confront them? And unfortunately, I think the Stanley case was a setback. Uh, the fact that there hasn't really been any constructive uh, official follow-up uh, to the acquittal and the alienation and anger that it sparked among many uh, Indigenous but also many non-Indigenous people, uh, I think this is another a barrier that um, has to be overcome. The Stanley Bushi case raised several procedural issues such as bail, preliminary inquiries, and the jury selection. 
In your opinion, how does our criminal justice system reflect systemic issues that often work against the interests of Indigenous peoples? Yeah, I mean, I had access to the transcripts of both the preliminary inquiry as well as the trial. And so you see in the preliminary inquiry how uh, the Indigenous witnesses who were, uh, two of them were in the car when Stanley was shot. You can see how they were subject to cross-examination that suggested that they were lying. Um, And you can also see how the two Indigenous males who were in the car who were actually not present when Stanley was shot. They were running away. Uh, But uh, you can also see how uh, assumptions about their criminality and their credibility entered into play. So um, I looked at this partly through, there's been a lot of debates uh, with respect to subjecting uh, sexual assault survivors to two forms of cross-examinations at preliminary hearings and then again at trial. And subsequently in Bill C-75, we basically got rid of preliminary hearings in sexual assault cases. So that that was one issue. Um, another issue is um, how does the judge uh, supervise or not supervise the um, uh, selection of the jury. So even though there was a lot of pretrial publicity, uh, especially on social media, there was no attempt to ask prospective jurors whether they had participated or would be influenced by that pretrial publicity. There was also no attempts to ask them whether they had uh, biases because the deceased and many of the witnesses were indigenous. Uh, And then finally, and and probably most famously, there was the use of peremptory challenges. So this this was a case that allowed me both to explore some of the history of the area, but also uh, to use my knowledge and interest in the criminal trial process. And I kind of go back to the George Fletcher book about Bernard Getz, where uh, he similarly Uh, explores the legal background to the case. In your final chapter, you ask if we, as a society, can do better. What are some of the changes that have been made in response to the case, and what are some of the reforms that are still needed? Well, the you know, the major was Bill C-75, which people are probably hearing now uh, with respect to so-called bail reform. At the very last minute, the Trudeau government uh, put in a proposal to abolish uh, peremptory challenges. And I was a supporter of that, um, but um, I don't, and, and, and that was enacted, and it was subsequently challenged under the Charter in a Supreme Court of Canada case called and I represented the Asper Center, uh, which along with Aboriginal Legal Services defended the constitutionality of the abolition of peremptory challenges. But it's also uh, important to mention that uh, the, the Black um, uh, uh, Action Center and uh, groups representing Asian and Muslim lawyers challenged the abolition of peremptory challenges on the basis that that would prevent prevent uh, 
taking peremptories away from defense lawyers, I think especially in Toronto, Vancouver, and other major centers, might prevent them from using peremptories to keep basically white people off of the jury so that you would have a more diverse jury. So again, it was a very fraught issue. Um, and I you know, I, I, I make no apologies for wanting peremptory challenges to be abolished. Canadian law had not attempted to regulate the discriminatory use of peremptory challenges. And American law, I think, is generally seen as unsuccessful, even though it has attempted uh, to regulate or prohibit the discriminatory use of peremptory challenges. But there were other things that I wrote that we needed to do. One was um, only Canadian citizens can serve on juries. I think permanent residents should also be allowed to serve on juries, and that would make the juries in our urban centers more diverse. I also think that we need to think about uh, working with Indigenous groups and to uh, uh, facilitate Indigenous participation in juries. This is a long-standing problem. And part of the tragedy, one of the many tragedies in the Colton Bushy case, is we know there were at least five, and I think at least eight, uh, uh, prospective Indigenous jurors who showed up. Uh, three of them told the judge they were related in some way to Colton Bushy, and they were excluded. But we know five were subject to peremptory um, challenges without any reasons by Mr. Stanley. So um, uh, I think we need to work with Indigenous communities. Um, I could very well understand why Indigenous people would not want to serve on juries, but the fact is that there were uh, at least eight uh, in that arena in North Battleford, and they were basically told to go home and uh, without any reasoning and with the judge simply saying, don't take any offense that you're subject to a peremptory challenge. And again, I think, um, you know, uh, certainly I uh, have benefited from white privilege in my uh, life. But I think um, that if I was even the only, you know, white person who was sent home, I would ask questions, let alone if I was an indigenous or other racialized uh, person. So I think when the judge said, don't take it personally, um, that really... Um, 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 obscured uh, what was going on. And of course, if you read the transcript, um, it's really silent about what happened. Uh, this was all because Jade Tutusis, uh, Colton Bushy's sister, uh, really uh, blew the whistle by attending jury selection and going into the media, I think quite bravely, uh, to uh, tell everyone what happened. The only time that indigeneity comes up on the written words of the transcript is actually at a very crucial place just before uh, uh, Gerald Stanley is subject to cross-examination, which will examine whether the gun went off accidentally or whether it was fired deliberately. And just at that moment, the trial judge asked a member of the audience not to wave an eagle feather. Uh, and, and 
and and had uh, informed the open court that the jury members had expressed some concern. Later on, during the deliberations, we also hear jury members were concerned that people were taking pictures of them. So this kind of fear, this this settler fear of indigenous people, uh, which unfortunately is as old as uh, as the Europeans coming to the prairies, I think was very much alive in that Battleford courtroom. Why is history important to the study of Indigenous, non-Indigenous relations, and why is it important to law more generally? Yes, well, I mean, my first degree was in history, and I thought very seriously about going on uh, to do uh, uh, postgraduate work in history. Um, I I think that um, history hopefully uh, teaches us a sense of humility. Uh, I work in a faculty which is really dominated by philosophy and economics, and I think there's a bit of a hubris to those disciplines. And I think history, by looking at where we have gone wrong uh, in the past, uh, teaches us humility. Uh, One of my recent books is about Canadian policing. And although I didn't intend to start with history, I found I had to start with history. Because if you look at the history of Canadian policing, it comes from a colonial model. It comes from the Irish uh, uh, constabulary, which was a colonial force that England put in Ireland. And even the name of the RCMP's training center, DEPO, uh, which of course is in the news because of the Mass Casualty Commission's recommendation that it be shut down, is taken from a uh, the training center that the Royal Irish Constabulary had in Dublin before Ireland, uh, the Republic of Ireland, was created. Uh, and so if you compare that to the Uh, uh, Sir Robert Peel's Bobbies, the London police, uh, where he, of course, is famous for saying the police is the public, the public is the police. And he was doing that not out of benevolence, but because there was a real reluctance uh, to accept public police in London because it was seen as authoritarian and and European, right? French, German, uh, and the like. And so even though I did not intend to write that as part of my introduction uh, to my book on policing, I found that uh, it's just the way my mind works. And so um, I often go go back um, uh, to, uh, to history because I find it illum- illuminating. Uh, and also it shows uh, the different ways that we've struggled to resolve issues in our society, um, um, you know, throughout time. Kent, thanks so much for talking to us today. It was my pleasure, Nicole. My guest today has been Kent Roach. He's the author of Canadian Justice, Indigenous Injustice, the Gerald Stanley and Colton Bushy case, published by McGill Queen's University Press in 2019. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca where you can learn more about the Champlain Society. Please follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram 
This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society who work hard to bring to life original documents in Canadian history. We would like to thank the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, as well as a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, McGill-Queens University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Nicole O'Byrne. This interview was recorded on May 9th, 2023. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt and supported by the University of Toronto Press Journal team.